You are listening to Ayahuasca Talks, and I am your host, Rebecca Hayden. Journeying within is a powerful way to begin or continue to heal and grow. To learn more about working with me to do this using hypnosis in an empowering way, please email me at rebecca.hayden at gmail.com to set up a free discovery call. Welcome to another edition of Ayahuasca Talks. I am your host, Rebecca Hayden, and today I have a very special guest. Uh, her name is Xiao Hu, and she is a psychiatrist based in New York, working in psychedelic research and has a private practice focusing on holistic approach to mental health. Welcome, Xiao Jay. Hi, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to get you back on the show. We've uh, had a few dis discussions, official and many, many unofficial ones. <laughs> and it's one of the unofficial discussions that we had that inspired me to do this particular episode to focus on the whole fawning phenomenon. And I'll explain my understanding of it and how it came up for me. And then you can expand on that and we'll... Uh, We'll get into it. So I remember it came up between us because I have these ongoing experiences where I'm continually learning from the dialogue that continues for me daily uh, that began in ayahuasca ceremony, but continues all the time. And one of these times, I can't remember what I was doing. Honestly, I can't. But the message that came through very strongly was don't pander. You know, and it was um, a comment on the way that I was behaving towards somebody. I think that I was being overly uh, pleasing or, you know, I mean, fawning is a very good word. And I just wasn't aware of it because I'd become accustomed to doing this sometimes. And uh, this was quite a few years ago. And I remember it struck me as so interesting and and it was really helpful. I mean, it really highlighted so much of my behavior that I needed to start to be aware of and change and understand and all of those things. And when I brought it up to you, you went, oh, fawning. And we just like <laughs> took it from there. So uh, yeah, please expand on your understanding of, of fawning and how it showed up in your life. And I'll share more stories. And yeah, let's get into it now. Yeah, sure. So I think fawning is a term that um, a therapist named Pete Walker came up with. Um, he's a therapist who wrote books um, like Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. And I think we're all kind of familiar with, you know, like the fight or flight response. And some people are also familiar with like the freezing response. And those are all different responses people have to trauma. And what I didn't know until uh, the last few years was that uh, there could be a fourth response that he kind of dubbed fawning, um, which is sort of like um, like a ingratiation or like a, you know, like trying to be really nice or kind of having no boundaries, sort of um, really sacrificing your own needs and preferences and feelings um, in favor of the other person uh, because you're just feeling too afraid uh, to do otherwise. So for example, like if you're like the victim of bullying or um, maybe in a sort of emotional abusive situation uh, where you're kind of uh, suddenly maybe very submissive to the person who's kind of, you know, wanting to um, want certain things from you or want you to do certain things. And 
if you're suddenly feeling like your automatic response is like, maybe you're just not connected to what you really want and you just suddenly only focus on the other person and kind of do what they want. Uh, that That's sort of like a rough example of what a fawning response could be. I found it really interesting because, you know, it really opened my eyes to the ways I was doing that in my life, uh, for sure. And I noticed that, yeah, that's definitely one of my dominant like responses in the past. Um, and it also felt like um, maybe a lot of women kind of resort to that as well. Um, I think because the fighting response, you know, may be a little more acceptable in men just, you know, growing up <laughs> in terms of like what, you know, men and women are more socialized uh, to express or what it's feels like it's more acceptable to express. And so I think for women, like being really pleasing or nice or submissive, it's just more acceptable. And that, you know, I, I just kind of see that being used a lot more, um, of course, without no like statistical data about like, oh, this is hiring women versus men, but that's just sort of what I've observed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's a big subject in and of itself, these these tendencies and their affiliation with, you know, either masculine or feminine. I think that sometimes women have even used that more aggressive response cloaked in feminism. And I, I think I, I particularly think about the 80s when I when we're talking about this and the and the assertive female, but I think that there was more aggressive than being assertive at times. And so it got really muddled. The whole genuine move towards a more balanced role for women in society, I think in some ways got lost in a lot of that, that really exaggerated behavior. But yes, I do agree that I think that we more easily fall into those roles if that's uh if that's that's fair to say you know i think that's a fair uh, yeah. observation men and women both could you know use this response of course not you know not to make it too gendered and it, it like yeah. hers when you know say when you're a kid and you know you maybe the fighting doesn't work you know like maybe you're being punished for fighting or you know running away or flight doesn't really work and freezing is not working and then maybe you become um someone who's just very useful and uh you know, compliant to your parents. And so I know there uh, was this book uh, called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, um, sort of about how uh, children, you know, with parents who are maybe a little more emotionally immature, um, sometimes become more um, the caretakers or they become like, quote unquote, like parentified children. So instead of kind of receiving that care from the parents, they're kind of offering it you know, or sort of like prioritizing the parents' needs over their own. So that's sort of where fawning can come in as well. Yeah, I think that's easy to fall into because I think there's another tradition there where you want to please your parents. So that's the very first sort of easy trap into that fawning response. For me, there was a close family member that I had this relationship with where uh, that is well described in that article that you sent me. Was it Pete Walker? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And he describes this particularly sort of heightened uh, relationship that involves both uh, someone who is having a trauma response that's more on the aggressive side, like that's most definitely like severely aggressive and narcissistic. And then the relationship between that person and someone who's fawning as a response to that. And there's they sort of feed off each other in that way. And 
this pandering. And even though I had in this relationship because of my medicine work and integration started to, you know, back off, I think that at that point I had to see uh, that how, how much it was in my life in other ways, you know, like these little tiny ways. And that helped me to see even more, like to move away even more from that relationship and be more aware of, of those types of, of reactions in me. But it's, it's ongoing. Like I'm, I now have this awareness. So there are times when I really just make sure that I feel good about how I'm responding. I know this sounds really petty or, you know, maybe minute, but I've noticed a lot of like, you know, initially when we, I'm old enough to say this, honestly, that when we started to email each other, there were, you know, missing facial expressions. So we'd put little smiley faces or whatever to lighten things up. Now there's emojis and there's gifts and all kinds of things that you send. And I think that sometimes people go really overboard. And with me, I like to try to be aware of how much I'm using them. And with me, I don't go overboard, but there are times where I just don't even need to. And I do find myself doing it and I question it. Again, I know this sounds really, it's, it's a small incidental thing, but it's just like a, an awareness of, do I really have to be so careful with the people that are, you know, trusted friends in my life? Am I that worried they're going to fly off the handle if I don't in, inject this this happy, light feeling into everything I'm saying? Because I'm not saying anything that's heavy or could be misconstrued, you know. So it was me more or less starting to just be aware on on all these levels of this kind of behavior and starting to, to step back from it and really observe it, you know? Oh, yeah, I, I'm totally guilty of the same. Um, I mean, I think um, while texting, I probably pretend that I'm laughing a lot, even though I'm totally not laughing. But it's <laughs> another little strategy to like lighten the mood, like even if it might be something pretty serious, and I'll insert an LOL just to like, you know, diffuse whatever, even though it was probably totally not necessary. But um, I mean, you know, I think a lot of that is probably like, you know, normal. I don't mean to pathologize everything, but, you know, I think it's almost like an extension of this more severe response where it's, it's almost like related to people pleasing or something. It's like just, um, I think it comes from fear, especially maybe fear of abandonment or rejection. It's almost like you're so afraid that someone might be displeased with you and then like leave the relationship or disconnect from you that, you're just kind of just doing your best to like make sure they're pleased or that they're happy regardless of what, what it really is. You know, even if it's like, there's really no reason why they shouldn't be pleased with you. Like you've done nothing wrong, but there's just that compulsion to just put in that extra work just in case, you know, I think it comes from a lot of fear. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people actually, might relate to this whole texting thing because it just brings it down to more of a everyday situation. And it's sure, you know, there's a casual aspect to it. But I do think that, you know, if you review it, a lot of people might find themselves going, oh, yeah, you know, I felt that. And those those feelings are, are pretty important when you start to go, yeah, you know, I felt kind of obligated to do this or felt like I must, you know, and it's true. There are kind of milder versions of it, but I think it opens the door to us being aware of, do we have that tendency, you know, and, and, and then where else does that exist in our life? And, you know, what was the 
the, the causal uh, emotional relationship that kind of led to that fear that, you know, under normal circumstances, normal conversation, that we have to pack it full of all this, this, you know, fawning <laughs> to keep from someone getting offended or overreacting and even maybe becoming aware of, so is that person more reactive? Like who are the people in my life that, that are triggering that? Are they really, am I imagining it and just, you know, playing this stuff out? Or are there some relationships where that is happening and I'm participating in this way? And so it opened the door for me. It, it really did. And it may have been something fairly minor even when this message came through, um, but it was enough for it to be important for me to be aware of how I was responding and why. And the fact that it was inappropriate was enough for me to stand back and go, okay, I really got to take a look at this and where it leaks into my life in, in different areas and in different to different degrees because there was that extreme situation with that one relationship. But that, I mean, that lasted my entire life, right? As a family member, so, and took a lot of effort to change that. And then I had to look at, okay, and how has this impacted the way that I respond to others? And where is that coming from just me habitually doing this? Or is there another person that's like reactive and I'm, I'm actually, you know, genuinely concerned and, and responding in that way that's unhealthy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think this kind of behavior can cover a spectrum, right? Like, say you're just putting a few extra emojis into your text. no. no. <laughs> done not not a big deal not a big deal um but not at all yeah where it gets concerning is maybe on the other end of the extreme like extreme fawning behaviors might be like say you're in sort of like dominant submission kind of relationship with like someone who's really trying to control your life or you know in like a domestic violence situation um where you're really giving up your power uh, to another person. Um, and so that's when it might just, you know, be much more pathological, something you want to really look at. And I think earlier you mentioned how like there's the, um, you know, the fight response that might be associated with like a more, you know, uh, someone with more narcissistic traits or something, someone who uses fighting or aggression um, when they feel threatened or feel like there's imminent abandonment or something that sometimes compare really well with people with a fawning response, because if, you know, your reaction to someone, you know, being displeased is to kind of try to please them more than someone who is very reactive or, um, you know, like, you know, very demanding and, you know, being around them might make you feel like you're walking on eggshells or something like that, that may not feel like, as abnormal or may not send you as many red flags. Uh, if you're also used to like, I have to please everyone, you know? And so if someone is displeased, instead of questioning, well, maybe there's something going on with this person, you know, maybe it's not me, maybe there's something wrong with them. <laughs> um, uh, if your reaction is more like, I just need to work harder to please this person, because that's my job. <laughs> that That's when it can get a little pathological. And that's why people with these narcissistic traits and people with these fawning responses can often get paired together quite easily. <laughs> they feed off each other. Yeah. And you know, the language that is used in these messages is different, but it's tapping into this understanding that we're all developing and starting to become aware of. And I think that really it's just allowing us to see how uh, these early experiences in life and these habits that we form out of those experiences 
cause us to do this unconscious game playing with one another and behavior with one another that's not in the least bit authentic. <laughs> and, and it's all just programming. And if we've got like a large percentage of our life with that playing out, well, it's no wonder that there's a massive depression problem and drug problem and addictions, all of these things, right? All of this despair. It's not surprising at all. And this is why it's an amazing opportunity when we start to work with these medicines and and allow ourselves to see this playing out and stop that in its tracks and allow this more authentic behavior to come out, this authentic way of being. And it feels so much better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I totally agree. I mean, um, I like how you mentioned that it's sort of like we're all kind of developing and growing. And this is not to say that how anyone does anything is right or wrong necessarily. Like um, we're not here to like cast judgment. We're all just wherever we are and we learn the best ways to deal with our childhoods, you know, how, yes. you know, we grew up and, um, you know, I know we were talking a little bit about this before too, but I feel like trauma is so prevalent um, that it's almost like, it makes me think like they're, thinking about it as something wrong, like obviously in one dimension, something is very wrong, right? Um, and on the other hand, it's sort of like, it's almost like this is what, it's almost like what every human has to deal with at some point in their lives. I'm starting to see it more as like something that just helps to shape us, that makes us grow. Obviously, like I wouldn't choose it if I knew ahead of time consciously, that's what I was like gonna be born into or whatever. And I'm sure other people who've gone through complex PTSD or a lot of emotional abuse would not choose this either. But at the same time, it is what has catalyzed our growth and development. And I think on the other hand, the motivation for growing beyond these responses is to uncover more of our true self, our authenticity, like you were saying, because I think with the cost of the fawning response is sort of the sacrifice of the self, because you kind of had to like, you didn't really get a chance to even know what you needed or what you wanted, um, say, you know, if you had this growing up, because you had to really focus on the needs of the other people around you, just for pure survival, you know, say your caretakers weren't able to um, help you you know, relate to yourself or connect to yourself. Maybe they were not attuned to your needs. And so you had to focus on their needs so that they could stay alive and take care of you. And so you could survive. And so I think, you know, I think people with um, really strong fawning responses often grow up not really knowing who they really are inside. It's really hard to connect to. What do we really need? How do we really feel? And I've experienced this so many times, you know, especially when I was younger and especially before plant medicine work where I might be with someone and, it's, it may not be an abusive person, you know, it might be just a totally normal person, but I'll just go totally blank on what my agenda is, what my desires are. I'm just totally focused on, you know, what their will is, you know, and I, I would even notice that about myself, but it would be really difficult to change in the moment. I could only notice that that's my tendency, that, you know, myself wasn't very solid because um, I had to give it away so often. And it occurs unconsciously, you know, because it's, it starts from childhood. And I think with plant medicine work, what happened for me at least was I started um, just developing a stronger sense of self. And at first it almost felt like I was being selfish or maybe. Um, yes. 
narcissistic myself, which was one of my biggest fears, but it's sort of like, that's, you know, when you lean too far in one direction, sometimes you have to kind of lean in the other direction and it's going to feel like something that's totally wrong, even though it's actually where you need to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because the one aspect of this that I wanted to explore too is working our way through this is actually a good part of the work. It's, it's really rich and full of all these twists and turns that are really, uh, it's an elegant way of healing truly because all the things that come up that we have difficulty with are important for us to be also aware of. So for me, um, and, and I'm, I, I identify so much with what you said because you know, those of us who are highly empathetic, you know, this can be a gift, but it can feel like a curse when you're not aware of how this is also playing into this role, you know, and then on the other side of things, it's very authentic part of me, I just have to learn to use it in a way that's not self abusive, (laughs) you know, not losing myself, and being aware of when it happens when I'm leaving the focus off of me and going into the other and I need to return to myself, balance things out instead of just forever abandon my own position in things and then be able to do that, you know, without feeling like I'm having to be aggressive about it. So there's both sides of that. We are experiencing a lot of the the healing that we do with these plant medicines is love-based. And once we become oriented towards, okay, I have to be more loving, it feels very complicated to be more loving and at the same time not be fawning. And you're like, okay, I got to like move through this. I got to flow through this in a way because otherwise like there's all these, this strange sort of adjustment period where you're going, but wait a minute, is that not, you know, becoming less loving? And then, and then you just, I mean, for me, it was beautiful because it helped me to explore the true meaning of that and what that really meant. And bringing it all back to self-love because that's where it has to begin and it has to continue there because when that's good, it just emanates out of you and you don't have to apologize or fawn or any of those things because then that true healthy, authentic behavior is just, it's just that it's very healthy and there's none of this. Oh, what do I have to do? You know, awkwardness, awfulness, you know? I know apologies, right? I feel like um, I used to apologize all the time just for, it almost felt like I kind of had to just apologize for my existence. And I know this is also a tendency sometimes just women in general may have. Um, and, and I think that's all, all part of that as well. And I love what you said about love and self-love. And it is really tricky because, you know, I think it's hard to like prescribe any one thing for, everyone because everyone is so different and every situation is different and you don't really know what the quote-unquote right thing is until you're in it in the moment and you feel it out um and i think it's important to you know balance self-love with love of others um and so you know but it's you know it's a delicate dance because sometimes you may feel like it might be too selfish um and then you go too much the other way maybe and you're not like respecting your own needs it just takes practice and you just got to get in there and and start living and and trying and you'll you'll learn along the way you know like what is the best balance for you personally yeah and that journey is like never ending you know that continual moving towards that good balance And along the way, you get to learn a lot, you know, so the imbalances are teaching us, as you pointed at the beginning, 
when you learn something like this, another element of all of this trauma responses, which are things that we see in everyday life, like perfectionist, ah, so many of them, it's a rich experience, let's put it that way, when you're navigating your life based on fear, uh, because this is another part of it, I can't be wrong, or anything like that. So I think when I started to get all these downloads, and well, for me, when it's kind of like daily or weekly, and and it's a lot of big stuff, you know, that I have to really delve into. And, and I have to just be patient with it because it's not going to happen all at once. And the practice of learning and changing and learning more and changing more, I just had to learn to flow with it, continue with open curiosity and self-compassion and be okay. And then, yeah, and be aware of when the ego's in a negative way peeking in and saying, you, you can't be wrong. So becoming defensive or just continuing to open up, you know, and being aware of that saying, oh, that's interesting that that came up, you know, <laughs> right, and right. continuing along, right, to the dance. <laughs> I know the ego can be super sneaky, even in <laughs> growth, or especially in spiritual growth, and kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of taking that over and, you know, being like, I'm not growing fast enough, or I'm not, you know, enlightened enough yet, or something. Um, yeah. But that's just another part of you that's not not loving just exactly where you are right now. Yeah. And another thing that I like to, to sort of do in these situations is to see that, you know, you and I have discovered our own relationship with this particular response. And then we know that there are a lot of other people who experience it. it. And then we can see that on a on a very big societal level, too. And there's also submissive um, aspect of society when it comes to power. And this is another thing, and I'm not going to go off topic too much because, uh, you know, that could be a whole other show, just how our relationship with power, you know. Um, and on a small scale, when you think about us changing the dynamics of our relationships with people, that is taking our own personal power back, Right. So uh, that is something that is important to come to terms with no matter what. And when it came up for me in medicine work and in integrative work, like these messages and these concepts, I really did have to evaluate my relationship with power. How did I feel about it? Well, when there are very aggressive people that, uh, that you associate with power in your life, both in your immediate life and then in the larger scale of things, we tend to get a negative idea of what that means. So we might even shun the idea of taking our power back in any relationship. So I had to reestablish a better understanding of an appreciation for what it meant for me to be powerful because I certainly wanted it. We all do. That's what we go to the medicines for. <laughs> Let's take our power back and, and, you know, live more purposefully and better and healthy and all that stuff. And that is an element of it. There's no question. And it's just a matter of how we use that. And sometimes we give it up completely. And fawning is an excellent example of that, the giving. And you you described that well with like, I, my needs don't matter and they don't even exist. I'm not even going to focus on that, you know, focus on that person, what they need. Just think about the implications of this in the larger world and how many of these figures in the world that we associate with power and how we respond without even realizing it because this is part of our larger social reality. It's not isolated to our own individual lives, you know? Mm, 
Yeah, no, power is definitely a very interesting topic. Um, and I feel like the stereotypical maybe um, displays of power in our society are, first of all, not the only way that power can be embodied. Um, Truly, yeah. Sometimes uh, what we see a lot of is power over other people, like, or aggression. And we, and then we're like, well, we don't want to be like that, right? And so maybe power means that, and therefore I don't want to be powerful in that way. But I would argue that may not even be true, genuine power. If it, you know, if you feel the need to intimidate and bully others in order to feel powerful within yourself, um, that's not genuine power. That means you feel it's coming from a place of feeling powerlessness. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it, it may, you know, also originate from one of those trauma responses, but one that's like sort of fighting or something, you know, where you're kind of externalizing uh, all of the things that you think are wrong and your pain and you think, you think that someone else is causing it to you or something like that. Um, but I think yeah. there are much, you know, other ways of embodying true power that can look quite different on the outside, but we don't necessarily see it um, in society and it's definitely not glamorized or anything like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's just an interesting dynamic because we're talking about on an individual and personal relationship level, uh, we're talking about the, the aggressor and what's becoming so popularized is the narcissistic tendency or behavior. And then the other side of that coin, which is the fawning and that coupled together in a relationship. And yeah, you're right. Like it's because it's aggressive, we've, we've associated that with power, but it's not true power because power, just like authenticity, it doesn't have to have this exaggerated behavior. The very idea that that exaggerated behavior exists suggests that there's something really inauthentic and unhealthy there right it's almost like they're overcompensating for what exactly or something yeah anyway i i always think it's important to see it on a larger scale too because we're all in this soup together you know and this is impacting all of us. I guess it it emphasizes too the fact that when we start to change these things it reflects outwards. And this is how we really are changing the world by changing ourselves, because you can see the the impact of that. And it really does have a tremendous ripple effect. It already is the mindfulness movement, the uh, social emotional learning. It This is really changing things. And, uh, and, it, and it might get a little rough while those changes happen. We know that on our personal level, and sure, it can happen in the world too. And we just got to hang in there and learn through it, right? And grow through it and be patient and compassionate. Yeah, it's sort of like we're all uh, hurtling through the birth canal together right now. <laughs> um, with my hope that it's the process of birthing a much better new world. Um, but, you know, I definitely feel like, especially with the pandemic, it's sort of like we're all kind of in a collective initiation, um, a collective descent or underworld journey which, you know, ultimately, hopefully will lead to more power, more love. But, you know, it's messy. Births are messy. <laughs> and I think just because you may not feel good right now doesn't necessarily mean that you're not growing, doesn't mean that you're not on the right path. It just may not all look very pretty, you know, all the time. Yeah. I mean, we know from our own experiences that when, you know, we from come back from ceremony and things explode that it may not feel good at the time, but we can see in retrospect later, it's like, oh, that all fell apart so I could rebuild it 
in a better way now that I'm in a different state. <laughs> it's no longer cohesive with that older way of being. And I think that's really what's happening in the world right now. And from my experiences with ayahuasca in particular, there was always this talk, this kind of in advance awareness being given to me about the coming evolution. And I think this is it. I think we are experiencing it, a birth, an evolution, a change. Right transformation, <laughs> which we're all familiar with, with medicine work. Anyway, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining me today. I've been wanting to have this discussion forever and I'm so glad you joined me. And is there um, some information you want to leave people with if someone wants to get in touch with you and email or website or anything? Yeah, sure. No, it's been such a pleasure being um, on this podcast with you. And it's always really interesting having conversations with you. And I love the directions that it goes. Yeah, I think if you just Google my name, I'm part of um, a group private practice uh, with Dr. Drew Ramsey. And so I think the website right now is like drewramseymd.com. And I'm just one of the practitioners, you can contact me on there if you want to work with me or have any questions. And um, yeah, so Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Ayahuasca Talks. Please visit RebeccaHayden.com for more ayahuasca integration content and for information about working with me and using hypnosis as an empowering integration tool.